This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 34, covering Enter the Dragon 2012, the third anniversary celebration from the Congress Theater in Chicago, Illinois, on July 29th, 2012. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on the Open the Voice Gate feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to the show, click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to redcircle.com to our show's page. Click the, click the red box, and you will get taken to a subsite that will let you do either a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but thank you to all of our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. Joined alongside, as always, by my loyal co-host, Case Loez. We are now three years in to DGUSA, and boy... This this was an anniversary case, but uh, really, like looking at this card and as they looked back, that we are really like I know we say this a lot, different different promotion than what we were used to, right? Oh my god! I mean, even from the 2011 second anniversary show where we were talking about that entire episode, you know, hey, things are a lot different than they were in 2010. I mean, the fall off from 2010 to 2011 is noticeable, but the fall off from 2011 to 2012 is dramatic. And this is a promotion now that just, I, I, it feels without a vision. And I, I mean, the the bummer is we've now hit the point in the show where Drangit USA feels like Drangit USA. Like this is the reputation that this promotion ended up dying with. And it's a bummer because, you know, on this show, there's a few matches that I thought were outstanding, but it just, it lacks an overall vision. It's, you know, I think rewatching specifically Dragon Gate USA gets extremely difficult in 2012 because over 75% of the angles are happening on Evolve shows now. So we're trying to piece together results and storylines and trying to figure out what was going on. But it's just an era of the promotion that feels dead. And, you know, I said this last week, you know, I wrote the the most comprehensive history of Evolve article that I've seen and 2012 was a year where it's like, yeah, they ran a lot of shows, but none of them were very good. And Dragon Gate USA 2012, after Open the Golden Gate, which I think is arguably the sh- the best show in the promotion's history. You go to Miami, and you know things are fine there. It's kind of hit and miss. And then you go to the Midwest, and it's just dire. These shows. I mean, I I told Mike uh, this was the hardest time I've had getting through 
shows. I had the least motivation to watch this show than anything else we've seen before. And we're what, 34 episodes in now. And it's, it's been such a rewarding and fun project, but I was feeling it over the weekend. Like, Oh man, I got to watch this three hour Dragon Gate USA show. The car doesn't look good. It's just, Oh boy, I don't want to do this. And then I watched it and I'm not sure if I'm glad I watched it or not. We will, we will find out as we go along. Yeah. And like, that was one of my big takeaways is this is not a time where the promotion gets weird. Like the final few shows are very weird. DG USA shows. They are DG USA and name only. This is still Dragon Gate USA, but it's, it's missing so lot so much. And you, you know, it's probably a statement here that after how long are 2011 and 2010s we're covering all these shows that, we only have one more weekend of 2012, and then we're right back into 2013, and there's only about ten, eight shows for 2013, and that's it. So it's just like, it, I don't want to say like that it's dying in front of us, but in a lot of ways, this is a prolonged death that we're starting to kind of experience. And even watching the show, when we get into the show itself, it felt like that you were already watching the dying days of promotion. Oh, God, completely. I mean, we talked when, when Dragon USA was last in Chicago, which was the debut of Sabu. It was Tozawa versus Gargano and Shima versus Yamato. And, you know, I complained during that show just how dark the theater felt because you watch Open the Untouchable Gate or Untouchable 2010, those first two shows they or I guess two of the first three shows they ran there. And those shows felt special. It was Danielson versus Doi, Danielson versus Yamato. Even the fourth show, Fearless, which was uh, January 2010, it's a weaker show for the first year of Dragon Gate USA, but it is a show that at least has a life and an atmosphere. And one of the reoccurring takeaways from this show was, you know, these matches are probably a quarter to even a half star better than what will rate them, but the crowd doesn't care. I mean, there's no one in this building, and it's a, it's a big building, and you can just it just feels empty on camera. It's a bummer. And, you know, I would not want to be Shima Yamato Tozawa flying all the way across the world to work in a flea market near Detroit and then to work in this venue that at one point was packed to the rafters and felt like the start of something new. And three years later, it, you know, feels like the start of something dying. Yeah, and we'll we'll get more into it when we get to the show itself. But it's something where I could not find attendance for the show it was clearly maybe a quarter of the way full it was in 2009. You could see all the way to the back doors at moments. It was something that it was very dark in the Congress Theater, but kind of wish it kind of was even more dark because a lot of it kind of got depressing looking out to the crowd, especially during one match when there was a lot of crowd brawling. But uh, we had a lot of time, case that has passed between WrestleMania weekend and then these shows, especially in Dragon Gate proper and Last week, we decided to just focus on the Evolve stuff since, as you said, half of the stuff that's being built to is built on these Evolve shows. But there's a lot of stuff that's going on in Japan as well. So, okay, so I know that you've got everything kind of pulled up. This is during, like, the beginning of Dragon Gate's hot season that they took off shows. So we're going to try to get through and catch everyone up to date to what it was happening in the mother promotion in Japan. Yeah, it's a bleak era for Dragon Gate USA. It's an era of Dragon Gate in Japan where... Either the shows never really floated across the high seas digitally. There's a lot of 2012 that I've never seen. Or I also was compiling these results and I was like, that's right. I really don't like 
March of 2012 through July of 2012 in Dragon Gate. There's a lot of frustrating booking that I'll kind of take you through here. And we start with Dead or Alive 2012, May 6, 2012 in Aichi. Uh, this show had Rich Swan and Stalker Ichikawa defeating Kotoka and Super Shisa in the opener. Fake Naoki Tanazaki defeating Ada Kobayashi in two minutes in match number two. A historic matchup of sorts with T-Hawk going against Ata, an eight-man tag team loser revival elimination match with Akatsuki of Tamanaga, Shingo, Super Shenlong, and Yamato defeating Akira Tozawa, BB Hulk, KZ, and Mondai Ryu of Mad Blanky. Open the Twin Gate match, Kagatora and Susumu defended the belts against Don Fuji and Masaki Mochizuki. There was an Open the Brave Gate match where Dragon Kid won the belt from Ricochet using the Dragon Rana for the first time since 2008. Open the Triangle Gate match, Masato Yoshino, Naruki Doi, and Pac defeat Genki Horiguchi, Kanda, and Ryo Saito for the belts. And the main event, Shima defeats Cyber Kong in 25 minutes for the Open the Dream Gate title. This show is uh, notorious not only for the first Dragon Rana since 2008, it is also the big debut, at least of a televised show, for Larry Dallas as Mad Blinky's manager. And the Shima versus Cyber Kong match has gone down in infamy, and I will read you the translation of the post-match promo, where Shima blasted Cyber Kong for his performance and for all of the Mad Blanky interference. He said he wasn't worthy of a Dreamgate title match, much, much less a big show main event. He told him to get out of his ring and to go back to being just a second for important matches, and, uh... That was a half-work, half-shoot. Mike, your your thoughts on the infamous Shima versus Cyber Kong match? This is one of the matches that, in a lot of ways, doomed uh, Takashi Yoshida as a main event wrestler. And it was at a time where Shima kind of was... Uh, it just was like this was the long-term Shima reign, and this is always the one that has gone on. It's just... It's a match that... If this match was 10 to 15 minutes, it would have been one thing. But the fact that they had a traditional Dreamgate match with Cyber Kong, with like Larry Dallas interference with Matt Blanky and with all that, just ended up just having a pretty miserable night. And the, the whole entire show, for the most part, is just kind of one of those just uh, shows that were happening to happen. I mean, it's more remarkable that this is a show that Dragon Kid won a match in his hometown versus how they usually did. But it's just like it's like such a weird time, and we're gonna talk a bit about Ada later on here. But like his like first like real pay per view appearance after some stuff that's happened, and right before he goes to Mexico, is just kind of unremarkable. The matches I remember from the show really liking, and I haven't watched this show in like five years. But the Twin Gate with Yokosuka Chome versus Mochi Fuji, and then the uh, Triangle Gate match were both pretty strong matches. But the rest of the show is kind of there which is weird for the first of the big five shows. If you are a Dragon Gate Network subscriber, go watch the main event. It's clipped on the Dragon Gate Network version. I don't remember by how much, but if you watch that match and you know that Shima hated being in the ring, Cyber Kong killed his career dead that night and would later be punished both backstage and in the ring for his performance. It is... It is an uncomfortable watch. I mean, when that show finally hit the Dragon Gate Network, I was so excited to finally see it. And oh my god, I mean, it's just a horrifying, like, fun, bad, but also leaves you with a weird feeling in your stomach type of match. And it's something that you really feel a whole lot in that 
in that era of Dragon Gate, <laughs> especially a lot less nowadays. But you know, uh, you, th- the things that have changed in the promotion over the last few years, we don't have shows like this anymore that end in that kind of awkwardness anymore. No, we do not. We do still have King of Gate, though, and that began on May 10th in Cork and Hall. The first round matches that year were Akira Tozawa defeating Naruki Doi, Masato Yoshino defeating BB Hulk, Dragon Kid defeating Jimmy Susumu, and Yamato defeating Shingo Takagi the next night at the now-defunct Yokohama Red Brick Warehouse, a beautiful, beautiful venue. The first half concluded with Don Fuji defeating Mondai Ryu, Ada Kobayashi defeating KZ, and think about that, first round matchup in King of Gate 2012, a non-televised affair between Ata and KZ, and Ata comes out on the better end of it. Oh, how things would change eight years later, even if Ata was still the victor. Genki Horiguchi defeated Cyber Kong, and Masaki Mochizuki defeated Jimmy Kanda. That will lead us to the second round matches, where Horiguchi beat Fuji, Mochizuki beat Eita, Tozawa beat Yoshino, and Dragon Kid beat Yamato. Those matches would happen on May 12th and May 13th, respectively. We would then move to the semifinals, Kobe Sambo Hall, May 18th, where Akira Tozawa defeated Dragon Kid, and Genki Horiguchi defeated Masaki Mochizuki. And that led us to the all-important King of Gate 2012 Finals, Osaka Bodymaker Coliseum Number 2. Not only did we have the King of Gate Finals where Genki Horiguchi backslid his way into the history books, defeating Akira Tozawa in the finals, but we also had the return of Magnitude Kishiwada. He teamed with Shima on this show, defeating Cyber Kong and Mondai Ryu. This was Magnitude Kishiwada's first match in Dragon Gate since 2010. Mike, what are your memories of this tournament? So, I this is probably a good time right here to talk about Ada, because this was the big before excursion breakout for Ada, because before this tournament, there was a little something called King of Chop. And I don't think we've talked about King of Chop yet in the Rewind series, but it's one of those things that you kind of have to talk about when you get to Ada, where, again, when, we, when I say this promotion's in a really weird space, they had a shoot tournament where, they, where the way that they would decide the winner is you would each change three chops, you would not hold back whatsoever, and you'd either quit or you'd get the fan response. And the winner of the tournament would get, like, a certain wish, and the thing was that the finals would have ten chops. And Ada, as a young guy... Went through the tournament, making Mondai Ryu quit after two chops, uh, winning over the fans against Cyber Kong, making Don Fuji quit after three chops, and then giving Tomahawk TT ten chops. And from winning that, he got into King of Gate. So that's why it's so remarkable that he got onto the quarterfinals in this thing, especially against someone like KZ. And of course, you have the fact that what you talked about uh, Cyber Kong already getting uh, getting shoved down the card, already kind of getting uh, de-elevated. He loses in the first round, and then he's pretty much, in a lot of ways, in the semifinals, loses to, on the night of the semifinals, he loses Katoka in five minutes. So, real inter- real weird time. Uh, of course, uh, Ginky Horiguchi would wear the tank top from the show for the next three years as he is King of Gate 2012 champion. Uh, he would wear that tank top for the next seven years. I think Horiguchi got a lot of use out of that. And you're, and you're right. Shame on me for glossing over King of Chop. It's unfortunate that stuff won't hit the Dragon Gate Network for another five years if we're lucky. That seems like an expedited timeline. If you look around the internet, the King of Chop stuff is out there in certain places. 
it's really fun. It's really weird. I don't know how, how well it did in Japan, but it was a thing that I think really caught on in the West because when I was getting into Dragon Gate, summer of 2013 into 2014, by that point they had stopped doing it, but there was still a lot of like, I hope they bring it back. Like this was so much fun to watch. And uh, in a weird way, it's it's Ata's career. It's how it began. It's just bizarre to think about. And then from there, we go to a quick note on June 10th, where the Twin Gate belts changed hands. Kagatora and Susumu dropped them to BB Hulk and, once again, the fake Naoki Tanazaki. And that led us to Champion Gate, uh, the the annual tradition at this time it was happening in the middle of June. Hakata Star Lanes, the title matches on night one, June 16th, 2012. It was a Brave Gate match with Dragon Kid defending the belt against Super Shisa and a Triangle Gate match where Yoshino, Doi, and Pac defended the belts against Tozawa, Cyber Kong, and Mondai Ryu. You'll notice at this point as we go along, there's a lot of Mondai Ryu just everywhere on these shows. <laughs> World One International opened up this show by apologizing that he was in the main event. It's just... He's he's everywhere. Night two, June sixth or June seventeenth, rather, Hakata Star Lanes. Mondai Ryu beats Rich Swan in a singles match thanks to interference from Larry Dallas. And then your title matches, the Twin Gate belts changed hands once again as Susumu and Kagatora won them back from not only fake Naoki Tanizaki and BB Hulk, but it was a triple threat match with Kaness and Kenichiro Arai of Windows also in the match. And then your main event. Shima defeats Genki Horiguchi, extending the Opa the Dreamgate run, and that was Champion Gate. Mike, I don't, I don't remember these shows. I don't know if they ever aired at all, let alone if they made their way out west. Do you remember these? I remember the results. I think some of them maybe made it out much later. These weren't for Infinity. I think these might have made out as part of like the box sets they used yeah. to do. Uh, so, so we should probably talk about Mondai Ryu for a quick second. I don't know if we've had addressed him well, really. Let's talk before. about him after the the Cork and Hall show that I'm about to break down because he is a a All right, major yeah. part of the uh, July Cork and Hall show. Before we got to that, there was a June 24th Kobe Sambo Hall show, the Shima Royale to determine Shima's challenger at Kobe World, where Akira Tozawa defeated Shingo, Yamato, Naruki Doi, Masato Yoshino, and BB Hulk to get the spot. That is the big six in one match. That was a big match. And that led us to the aforementioned July 6th Cork and Hall show. Just a mess of a show. I'll I'll read this full card because why not? <laughs> BB Hulk and Cyber <laughs> such a mess. BB Hulk and Cyber Kong defeat Kadishiro, Ryan Katoka, Dragon Kid and Gamma defeat Jimmy Kanda and Saji Hoko Boy. Fake Naoki Tanizaki defeats Jimmy Kagatora. Match four, I will say, I this is on my like vanity promotion like number one with a bullet. This might be the match that I book. Pac and Rich Swan defeat Kness and Super Shisa. That sounds terrific. What does not sound good is the semi-main event, the Mask versus Passport Falls Count Anywhere handicap match where Shima defeated Akira Tozawa and Mondai Ryu. And then your main event, this match I know I've seen, this match is phenomenal. The 12-man tag team four-way elimination match, Fuji, Mochizuki, and Kishiwada defeat Horiguchi, Susumu, and Saito, Tamanaga, Takagi, and Yamato, and Yoshino, Doi, and Ricochet. But Mike, the story coming out of this show, the Mask versus Passport Falls Count Anywhere match, and just so much Mondai Ryu. Well, Mondai Ryu was legitimately 
like a star. <laughs> the, the, the crowd kind of took it to the idea that he's the worst wrestler in the world. There were people that would show up in Monday Ryu bags over their head with, with like the mask cut out of it. He was like a legit thing, and he it just a lot like how Tamanaga kind of became kind of a fan favorite for some reasons. Uh, there was a lot of Mondai Ryu and, and way too much Mondai Ryu as the act got really old real quick. And of course, the uh, mass versus passport thing. Shima has histories with people t- and passports and him taking other people's passports. But this time, Tozawa really did it. And it's just like such a weird build up to this Kobe world. The fact that instead of like focusing really on like Tozawa, the guy who betrayed Shima earlier this year and and exiled him, took over his unit. No, no, we're doing Mad Blanky shenanigans and Mad Blanky version one shenanigans building up that Kobe World show. Yeah, it's uh it's a rough build to World, a show that took place on July twenty second. Uh this show I know for a long time was not out there in full. The popular version of this in the West is the one that is on the Drangate Network now, the digest version where most of the undercard is clipped. I know I was really excited at one point. I got my hands on the full uncut version of this show, and it's it's a strange Kobe world. I'll read down the whole card with Kines, Kenichiro Rai, Shisa Boy, and Super Shisa defeating Horiguchi Kanda, the uh, real Naoki Tanizaki, and Ryo Saito in the opening match. Match 2, Chihiro Tamanaga and Super Shenlong defeat Kotoka and Rich Swan. Match 3... I think it's one of the worst matches in Dragon Gate history. It's at Sushi Onita and Stalkery Chikawa defeating KZ and Mondai Ryu. After that, we go to the Open the Brave Gate match. Dragon Kid defends the belt against Ricochet. Twin Gate match, Shingo and Yamato win the belts from Kagatora and Susumu. Open the Triangle Gate three-way elimination match with Yoshino, Doi, and Pac defending the belts over BB Hulk, Cyber Kong, and Fake Naoki Tanizaki and Don Fuji, Gamma, and Masaki Mochizuki. In your main event, Shima once again defends the title, this time over Akira Tozawa. And this main event, I really, uh, this is of course Tozawa Blinders on, was a really strong main event, but the big story from the show, and really like looking back at it, was the uh, Triangle Gate match and what happened after the main event. Yeah, so uh, like we became accustomed to with Uha Nation and with Akira Tozawa and later Ricochet, I think this was the first graduation ceremony that Drangate had had since Matt Seidel left, which is funny considering that Pac was the one that replaced Matt Seidel on the roster. So after the main event, Shima called out Pac and he came out with the rest of World 1 International. Pac said his farewell, thanked the fans in Drangate, and I will read this verbatim from the iHeartDG website. Soon the entire roster joined them in the ring. Each and everyone had a chance to say a few words to the man that Gravity forgot. They ranged from brief words of respect to memories of prior battles to Yamato asking him to come get drunk in Rapongi one more time. There was a common theme, though, that he was a member of the Drangit family, an incredible performer, and we will never forget him. He gave his own brief speech before his theme song played one final time now Mike we can kind of lump this in with not only was Pac open the Triangle Gate champion for the last few months of his time in Dragon Gate proper but in May and early June he took his talents to New Japan Pro Wrestling for the best of the Super Juniors tournament and I will read you all of Pac's block matches real quick he starts off Cork and Hall on May 27th 2012 by defeating Jushin Thunder Liger in Cork and Hall he would go on to defeat Taichi. He would lose to Angel Del Oro 
and Kushida on uh, back-to-back shows. He would go on to defeat Gato, then lose to Rocky Romero. He defeated Prince Devitt and Corkett Hall in a match that ended up getting both of them signed. This is a match that Rob Naylor lost his mind for. He showed everybody in FCW he possibly could, and it really uh, cemented the fact that both of these men needed to be in the WWE. Pac would then beat Bushi in his final block match before losing to Ryosuke Taguchi in the semifinals and Mike the finals that year of the best of the Super Juniors tournament to keep it in the theme of Dragon Gate USA. Ryosuke Taguchi defeats Low Key. So that is prior to the return of the Bastard Pac in 2018 and his subsequent Open the Dreamgate run. This is how Pac closed his story in Japan, and it was just a really interesting time for him. Yeah, and for and, and for Pac, it's something that there was a big level of this was a big thing for Dragon Gate when he left because like Seidel was around and Seidel got signed and he got a farewell, but he was somewhat of a completed project, a product by the time he was in Dragon Gate and his time there was short. Uh, Pac was someone who went from being basically a guy in the dojo to a world one assistant to a member of world one to basically just becoming a trueborn. He was such a big star. He was the reason why Dragon Gate UK really was a thing. And he just is someone that after the fact and the and and, and the way that things were, like there was no doubt in my mind that whatever was going to happen with Pac after leaving WWE, he would end up in Dragon Gate first and foremost. Because it's just he was family. And it's something that even with through everything, like he still is to that to that extent. And it shows with how his 2018 to 2019 was, was that he takes the responsibility of being family and took the responsibility of being Dreamgate champion and did right by the company. And it's something that he really kind of, over like this period, like him going to WWE and him going to FCW and then later NXT was such like a validation moment in a way which now feels ridiculous saying that eight years after the fact and with how general sentiment about WWE and their business practices have drastically changed people's opinion of them. But it just was something that, like, the farewell and the way that he, like, went into the best of the Super Juniors, he really kind of was, like, the person that, in a lot of ways, for New Japan like this, was another another big piece of validation seeing how strongly he did in the best in the Super Juniors. And it kind of became a thing for the next few years of the promotion. I told people when Pac left WWE that if he was going back to Japan, he would go to Dragon Gate, not New Japan. People did not listen to me. What can you do? And the other thing I will say before we move on to our last two topics of the timeline, you know, it it ended on such a weird note, but to me, Pac's run as Neville is an unequivocal success. I said it from the day he debuted on the main roster. He was the best television worker that company had on a week-in, week-out basis from his main roster debut to when he finally left. From Raw to 205 Live, in the ring, on TV, he was the best. Weekly, he was unbelievable. And, you know, it's it's funny that his career has been so strong that his time in WWE, especially the main roster, NXT, I think that stuff will be preserved historically, but his time on the main roster is is his blip on the radar, really. It's the thing he will be least known for when things are all said and done, and it's crazy because 
I, you know, he had a match with Seth Rollins on Raw that I love. He had a great Kevin Owens series. He had a John Cena match that was great when Cena was doing the U.S. Open Challenge, which was the last time I was watching Raw on a regular basis. And then Neville transitioned into 205 Live, turned heel, and became just another beast. So, you know, my biggest revelation of this project has been just how important Pac was to Dragon Gate USA. And his absence, Mike, I think it's fair to say, is noticeable. Oh, he was unequivocally the MVP of the promotion. Like, I think that for as strong as Davey Richards and Brian D. Nelson's time were, as much as Shingo was a reliable force and Yamato and the rise of Akira Tozawa, as soon as uh, Pac came over, the promotion was very much like a flavor that I feel like was led from the top from someone like Pac. And it's going to be something to see over the, like the next 14 shows if anyone comes close to taking away the person where I think that they are like the number one of the promotion in pack. Two brief notes before we get to the actual show. June 5th, 2012 was the return of the DDG show, the Dragon Gate DDT uh, combination, if you will. This show circulated really well online. I think you can find especially the Shingo and Yamato versus Kisuke Ishii and Kenny Omega tag and the BB Hulk versus Kota Ibushi singles match. I think you can find those pretty easily if you haven't seen them. And then the main event was a big 10-man tag with Harashima, Kudo, Masaki Mochizuki, Sanshiro Takagi, and Shigehiro Iri defeating the Mad Blanky five-piece of Tozawa, Kong, Keizi, Ryu, and fake Naoki Tanizaki. What's notable here, you know, Sanshiro Takagi worked the March 1st Cork and Hall show. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And it seems like in return, Dragate worked this show. Shima, nowhere to be found, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, this is like an interesting thing. I, I'm i not the person to answer this, this question or ask this question. Is this something that the referee Mazunori kind of put on? Because he's a guy that will bring in a lot of people from like Osaka and that basis. And that kind of was like a vein here. And seeing that was in Osaka and not at Edeon Arena. That makes me wonder that question. Um, other interesting thing on the show, you get to have well, a match that's probably only after my heart case. Kenoka and Masa Takanashi defeating the Windows team of, of Shisha Boy and Super Shisa. That's a match right after my heart. I also, and I rarely say this, but I do need to apologize to Shima. He was actually in Mexico during this show, so I'm going to, to revoke that sentiment. He was busy uh, doing things elsewhere. I, I don't know if the referee is responsible for this. I know we were just talking off-air uh, last week about he is responsible for the DDT shows that are running in Osaka now, and the one that was on October 18th, 2020, which is on the DDT universe, which was almost like an Osaka Pro Super Show, where you had Jun Akiyama teaming with Magnitude Kishiwada in a match, and then the semi-main was Billy King Kid and Kanosuke Takashita against Hubbo and Yuki Ono, and then the main event, Kazu Sada Higuchi and Yuki Sakaguchi versus Masato Tanaka and Shigehiro Iri. That show was awesome. Uh, I'm not even a big DDT person. They've been doing a lot of stuff I like lately, though. And that show was a lot of fun to watch. So whoever is kind of running things in Osaka right now, more power to you. I mean, any time that my main man, Magatukishawada, shows up anywhere, my my interest has been peaked at the very least. (laughs) So we talk about Mexico. The other two notes here... 
ATA officially went on excursion to Mexico when it started with a DTU show on June 2nd, 2012. This is why I realized Shima was actually in Mexico. As the main event of this show was Shima and ATA teaming together. They defeated Violento Jack and Drastic Boy and Flamita and Super Mega. So we see some familiar faces there. And then a, a result that happened just after... Kobe World, but I guess it's in our timeline. I, I wanted to be sure to mention it. There was an independent show July 24th, 2012, in a three-way match with Drastic Boy, Ata, and Dookie. And that is Ata's excursion summed <laughs> up in a nutshell. Yeah, uh, stories about Ata in Mexico are somewhat uh, legendary <laughs> in a way. But uh, it's interesting. So winning King of Chop, the first thing that Ada got as Victor was he wanted to be in King of Gate. Shima stepped aside there, and then he said, I also, I know you're going to go to Mexico too. I really want to learn traditional Lucha Libre. Can I come with you? And that was the, ex- and that's kind of the start of the millennials was the fact that Ada Kobayashi wanted to go to Mexico to learn. And you look at how things have kind of formed there. I mean, one could arguably say that that tag match he mentioned, Jurassic Boy, Flamita, Jimmy might have already been wrestling at that point. Like, that's another wild thing. And it just kind of was, like, the start. And it'll be a very interesting thing as we're getting to the end of it where DTU, arguably, by the end of 2013, becomes their more important promotional partner than DGUSA is. That is a scary good point that I had not considered. Uh, Jimmy was not on that show, but Rocky Lobo was. And that is a win for all Hell of us. Yeah. yeah uh, Hell you yeah. Know, the next set of shows we're talking about is a triple shot, and I know there's some Ata lore that we'll get into about his time in America. We'll dedicate a portion of that show to talking about Ata in Mexico because it's it's something that should <laughs> it's something that should at least be mentioned. I I'd something that we would not be doing our due due diligence if we did not mention Ata in Mexico and how much he loved it. But we would also not be doing our due diligence if we did not talk about Enter the Dragon 2012. Uh, The only other timeline note that I have pertains directly to this show where Meltzer broke uh, the news on the July 2nd Wrestling Observer newsletter where he mentioned that Masato Yoshino has decided he no longer wants to come to America, essentially. And he and Ricochet were the Open the United Gate title holders, which means that the United Gate belts went from Shima and Ricochet to being vacated because Shima was hurt, to Ricochet and Yoshino to being vacated because Yoshino did not want to come to America. Uh, And that is essentially the story. And it was just a weird point in time. I I begged Rich Krejci to, to dig deep into the archives. He could not find the interview either, but... One of the things that got Voices of Wrestling off the ground was Rich and Joe interviewed Gabe Sapolsky around this time in 2012 so Gabe could, one, clear the air about the Ring of Honor situation that we talked about last week where it came out that Gabe uh, may or may not have been trying to find an office job in Ring of Honor and also to clear up the Open the United Gate tag title situation because at the time, it was just a complete mess, and you know, luckily by the end of this show, we finally got some sta- stabilization there. And with that in mind, I'm ready to enter the Dragon, Mike. So am I. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, Enter the Dragon was from the Congress Theater in Chicago, Illinois on July 29th, 2012. As we mentioned before, this is it for Dragon Gate in Chicago, and this is also it for 
Dragon Gate at the Congress Theater. We are now saying goodbye with the show to another yet another venue case. And as we move to 2020, to close out 2012 and again 2013, we'll be saying this a whole lot more. But this was a big one that they bid farewell to. And we open up the show with a special treat case. It might introduce you to the latest edition. And it seems like this is something that Gabe does in his farewell shows to venues of the Gabe Sapolsky Masterpiece Theater. Oh, my God. Mike, do you want to I, – I, you know – I was going through this timeline. I was like, you know, I don't like Dragon Gate at this time period that much, but at least the shows were fun. We got to open with this shit, man. Can you talk about it? Because I don't want to. So this is going to be a reoccurring theme. This is a three-part Gabe Sapolsky Masterpiece Theater, of course. The first one is the best segment in DGUSA history of Brody Lee harassing people and then staring down Uha Nation. <laughs> not, not, not just this harassing people. Throwing a man in a trash can or in a dumpster, and then Uha Nation is standing a there. <laughs> menacing menacing uh so the the show opens up in pitch black where we can't really see we do hear christina von airy saying that she's going ghost hunting and she wants the cameraman to follow her we can't he i recognize the voice of christina von airy but uh can't see anything with this and that's how we kick off this show well she says we're going ghost hunting gabe who is behind the camera follows her for a second now at first we don't know what's her because we can't see anything and then she kind of becomes a little bit more lit up and then i'm assuming they're in the basement of the congress theater she like looks at the camera she's right. like, follow me and then goes into the void and you hear gabe going well I, I, i'm not going any further uh and that's how the <laughs> segment ends and it's just like what what like and again I like Christina Von Eri. I really am like trying not to pick on her because I don't even think like necessarily what she's doing is bad. I just don't understand what she's offering to this promotion. She has added nothing to this promotion and I don't understand why she's being used. And it's just shit like this. That is amateur. Like, there, there's a, a reoccurring theme. Mike, I don't know if you noticed this, but the entrance themes were so blown out and distorted and oh, uncomfortable. God. Yeah. Now, we talk a lot with Gabe shows. You know, if Gabe had you, me, and Rich Krejci in the venue five hours before the show started, we could make Gabe's venues look presentable. I don't know how to fix that distortion issue, but I sure as hell know how to not, not to quote Death Cab for Cutie, how to not lead Christina Von Airy into the dark, or I guess how to follow her into the dark. It's, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's so embarrassing. Like, this stuff is awful. I hate it. And I hate that this is on these shows. It's such a bad way to start a Dragon Gate USA show. And Case, if your bad mood started there, it's going to continue as then we cut to the arena. It is overly loud, as you said. The PA balance was completely out of whack on the show. Chuck Taylor comes out with the man scout, and they're going to build a campfire again. This time, it is Masada interrupts. Chuck Taylor does make reference about how long the segment was going. So Chuck knew that this thing was bombing live. And that led us to Masada defeating the man scout, Jake Manning, in 2 minutes and 24 seconds with a regal plex. I just, I, you know, it's Masada and Jake Manning. It's, I mean, Masada came across really well on his Art of Wrestling episode. So maybe he's a nice guy. Jake Manning, like I've said, I'm sure he's a nice guy. He seems like he knows what he's doing with high spots. Never want to see him wrestle. Luckily, this was quick, and it's the last time we have to watch Masada. Yep. Uh, 
and then we cut to the back. It is Rich is Ricochet and Rich Swan struggling to think of team names. Some of them are words that I cannot say, <laughs> but it was just kind of 2020 kind of things. And then Ricochet ends this off talking about how he wants to remain undefeated. Yeah, they. I don't. I don't remember the contents of this promo. I know when they teamed at PWG, they landed on the Inner City Machine Guns, which I remember thinking was super funny when they came up with it in 2014. I'm not sure how I feel about it now, but oh god, yeah. Some of the names here were <laughs> worse. Uh, were worse. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, Mike and I are not in the position to perhaps transcribe this promo even. Yes, yes, and I'm gonna leave that there. In case we got a third year recap, we got a lot of these on the show. I I, I kind of liked it when a second year recap. This was kind of depressing, in a way, because it reminds you how the promotion is falling. The first one was the from Milwaukee, the uh, Twin Gate versus United Gate finish, where the Spike Mohicans won the United Gate title. Yeah, I remember saying it in my and during that show. I mean, that's one of my favorite matches in Dragon Gate USA history. I ended it with Meteora, fuck you. That's the three count because that's how it felt when Shima <laughs> pinned Masato Yoshida. It was just a Oh my god, it was such a good match. I mean, I you know I liked this. I liked some matches on this show, but nothing on that level. Right, right. And then we have the next match. It is the scene of Caleb Conley and Scott Reed with Larry Dallas defeating the team of Zero Gravity of Brett Gaika and CJ Esparza in ten minutes and ten seconds with the O face. So I really thought about the scene during this match because Scott Reed is good. I don't know if he's improved all that much since they became a full-time unit, which was a year ago during the Midwest triple shot in September of 2011. Caleb Conley has improved since then. He has a lot more improving to do. I think we're about a year away from where I start really liking Caleb Conley, but they are just, they're so not over. And it's something I'll talk about in the John Davis match too, where, you know, the scene this is this is their history in Dragon USA. They worked squash matches against local talent, and that's all they did. And and I was a little bit reserved for a second because there's a, a segment later on in this show where a bunch of tag teams are cutting promos about how they deserve to have United Gate title shots. And the scene was out there, and I was like, well, maybe maybe they wrestled for the belts on an Evolve show, and I just don't remember it. But they never did that. They were just an undercard tag team that just existed. Like, they weren't over, but they did nothing to get over. Like, Gabe never gave them a chance outside of beating Shima and Mochizuki. But that show is not out on DVD at this point. That show was not an iPay-Per-View. And they were just abysmal on the iPay-Per-Views in Miami. So you now you've got this homegrown talent after Gargano Taylor Swan that is just not given a chance to get over even. I mean, they're just guys on the card, and it's not that the scene are bad or even that Zero Gravity is that bad, but a match like this with four guys that just aren't over drags down the show so much. And it's something that you look at Zero Gravity, and the first thing that came to mind there was me looking at this and going, oh, uh, they look like a VHS ripoffs of what Irish Airborne were doing in 2012. Oof. Or where they were last time I saw them. Yeah, that's a that's a scary good comp. That is frightening to think about a knockoff Irish Airborne. Yeah, and it's not like me like trying to design this. Uh, they had Colt Cabana on commentary, and he was very good here. It just was like this is not a match that should be on a DGUSA show. This is something that should have stayed on Evolve in a lot of ways, and it really does show you like 
the uh, at least uh, Gabe's opinion of the scene and how they felt them that like they would have had opportunities or they should have had opportunities maybe if more people were coming over to have matches against your Maraha Safas and just was not happening. They were having 10-minute matches where they go back and forth with a tag team that basically exists but is always a jobber tag team in Zero Gravity in DGUSA. Yeah, I almost want to empathize with Gabe a little bit because I think they're, like, the scene Conley and Reed, and, you know, Larry Dallas did a good job on this show too, but it's like they're they're a talented act. But I just, what are you going to do? Because I understand... The idea of, hey, these guys aren't over. Let's get them some squash matches. Let's get them some impressive wins. Now, this match was 10 minutes long, so it wasn't exactly a squash. But, you know, let's say that next weekend you have Yamato and Shingo on those shows because they're teaming in Japan at the time. If you book the scene versus Shingo and Yamato, people are going to shit on that. Like, they don't want to see that either. So you're just in a rock and a hard place. And I don't I don't know what you do there. Honestly, the answer is probably to stop booking the scene, but they're talented, so I understand why you want them, one, on your shows, and two, not on Ring of Honor shows, but it's just, it's frustrating. It's the scene are just the designated special attraction match every single weekend, and they're not growing as performers or as an act because of it. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of those things that really, for like this act, it just kind of stagnates, and it's not their fault. I mean, they... I, I think I might be a little bit higher on Caleb Conley than you are at this point, but I'm also a little bit less on Scott Reed. I feel like Scott Reed at a certain point just kind of is Scott Reed, but it's just like they're stuck in neutral. And that's kind of how a lot of this first half of the card is because we'll get into like the next two matches and it's people stuck in neutral. Well, and it's just frustrating. Absolutely. I mean, that's such a weird thing with this promotion. And it's something that they, they probably could have used to their benefit at some point. I don't think Gabe necessarily marketed it the right way. But, you know, I'm a weirdo. I don't typically watch wrestling in order. Like, I'm going through a big Joshi project now where I'm watching 90s Joshi for the first time ever. And I kind of bounce all over the place. I'm watching a match in 92 and then a match in 96. And unless it's a specific series of matches, I, I don't necessarily follow a specific timeline. And for the longest time, that sure. is how I watched Dragon Gate USA was like, well, you know, I've got some, I've got some money I can spend. Let me go to WWNlive.com and, you know, I'll watch open the untouchable gate and then I'll watch fearless 2011. And then I'll watch open the ultimate gate 2013. And I know that's insane to some people, but it's like, I have a hard time in, in the record store, most people would start with A, and they would go through the alphabet until they're done shopping. I bounce from A to M, back to C, I'll go over to T. Like, I zigzag across these stores. It's just how my mind works. So there's a lot of 2012 that I never saw, because the first four or five matches on this show are, you know, nobodies. They're guys that I don't care about. They're not lined with Dragon Gate talent. And so, you know, I hadn't seen the Miami shows because I thought the undercards looked really weak. I I had seen uh, this show specifically on Flow Slam. I hadn't seen the show we watched the week prior. The next two weeks are shows I'm completely unfamiliar with because the undercards are just, they're jobber matches. I mean, quite honestly, that's what they are. Yeah, and it's something where it just kind of, in a lot of ways... Gets you in a really bad mood, and no wonder the crowd wasn't really up for any of this. It's just kind of just there, and it's going to get even more there as we go on through this show. I went two and a half stars on this match. Like, it's, it was fine. Like, it was not bad. It just was there. I'm right there with you. All right. Then we have the second part of Gay Sapolsky 
Masterpiece Theater as screams are heard in the basement from Christina Von Eri as she's still chasing ghosts. And then we have another 30-year recap. This time it was Johnny Gargano winning the Open the, the Freedom Gate title against Yamato. I'm a few shows away from crafting a really big Gargano talking point. I'm not there yet, though. So let me just say I enjoyed the Yamato match for what it was. All right. All right. And then we get to another singles match. Samurai Del Sol defeats Shane Hollister in five minutes and four seconds with a, with a poison Rana. Uh, Hollister is fine. There was a lot. Uh, this match was just fine. It just was fine. Okay. So, <laughs> so I really liked Shane Hollister. He was a guy that was a Midwest guy, AAW, pre-Lucha Brothers, Chris Hero, Zack Sabre Jr. When they became a super indie, it became a different company. And by that point, Hollister had largely retired. But when AAW was a true indie, Shane Hollister was kind of their ace. And, you know, I'm not incredibly well-versed in that era of AAW, but I've seen enough of it to know that I like Shane Hollister as a worker. He's actually a guy, I remember thinking, like, even, like, 2013, 2014, like, man, he just seems like a guy that Ring of Honor should have on their roster. Like, it's weird that Sinclair isn't using him. The issue with this match is that he is not a great base, and he and Del Sol do not have a great chemistry with one another. Now, I'm sure both coming up in the Chicago scene, they wrestled each other a million times, but... You wouldn't know that from watching this match. It's a match where Hollister looked fine. He was good, but not good enough to warrant getting a call back. And Del Sol was impressive, but not super impressive. And certainly a far step down from where he was the night before with Generico. And it's just like, all right, like this match happened. You know, at two and three quarters, and I'll move on with my life. It's just another weird, lifeless undercard match. Yeah, and a lot of talk about Del Sol finally getting a contract and just kind of was just there. It just was there. I went two and a half. I mean, it was it just was not enough there. Like, I remember Shane Hollister as being in a, in a name that when I used to watch IWA Mid-South would pop up a lot, and I always thought he was fine with, like, no big opinions of him from there. Uh, then we had another backstage promo. This time it was Shima with AR Fox. Shima says he will that he's making a new tag team, and it's going to be better than his previous tag team. And, you know, just Shima being charming. <laughs> And then we had a backstage, and it was Chuck's turn, at, or the next third year thing is Chuck's turn on Ronan at Miami, or in Miami. Yeah, I guess it's a big moment. I mean, all things considered. Oh, oh we're going to get into some other quote-unquote big moments as we go along here. Then we had Super Smash Brothers of uh, Player Uno and Player Dose. Chuck, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Colt Cabana was very confused on if Player Dose was stupefied or not. Defeating the DUF team of Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez in 15 minutes and 27 seconds with a fatality on Pinky Sanchez. Was this uh, was Cole Cabana on commentary for this, or was this Dr. Keith Lipinski? I apologize. I looked down right in my first note, and it's a great Dr. Keith line. I don't know if Dr. Keith Lipinski listens, but I would like to apologize. You were great on commentary in this match. <laughs> I, was, I was texting him about this show earlier today, which is why I wanted to make that correction. It was delightful to hear Dr. Keith on commentary for this match and the match that followed. I've never said this before, but my God, I miss Sammy Callahan. I hate <laughs> the DUF when it is just Cannon and Pinky Sanchez together. It's way too gimmicky. There's way too much drinking beer in the ring. And for as much as I like the Super Smash Brothers, and again, we're coming off of, they're a week removed from a five-star tag team match where they are the kings of Reseda, California. And they had two really sloppy matches that completely lacked heat, to be honest. This was a sloppy, heatless bore. 
and, and it's something where I felt like that Super Smash Brothers were better on this night, but I don't think that this is something that is going to be necessarily looked back upon fondly. And, you know, Pinky sucked in this match. Pinky Sanchez, like, botched a lot of stuff. There was a really weird topic on Hello into the finish that was just there. And I like this more than the first two matches because I like Super Smash Brothers a whole lot. But it's just kind of there. Uh, it, it, w- w- my favorite note I've written down is a Dr. Keith line, and I, and I quote, Eric Cannon is so crisp and clean for a drunk. <laughs> I'd like to hear Dr. Keith do more commentary. I think that would be good for the wrestling industry. What I, I, I want to ask you, though. Sure. Were you, were you following PWG in this time period? I mean, I would watch all the videos, and I think I would later go and collect stuff. I mean, at this time, I was pretty much Dragon Gate. I would still watch Raw and SmackDown. I was completely out on Ring of Honor. Actually, you know what? This was a time I was watching a lot of TNA. Oh, my honest. God, 2012 TNA. Uh, that's our next podcast, Mike. Right, I mean, yeah. that calendar year, I just, I mean, it's, you know. Get Garrett Kinnean on here. Yeah, it's Austin Aries at his, you know, national TV level apex. I was thinking earlier today, it's like, you know, Austin Aries in the ring is the personified version of the meme of heartbreaking the worst guy you know makes a great point. Like, Aries is yeah. the worst human, and oh my god, he's such a good wrestler. It breaks my heart. But I, I ask you about PWG just because this is right around the time I was getting into it. I, I think I said last week, you know, I ordered my first PWG DVDs in December of 2012, right after Mystery Vortex, and and was just, I mean, I remember being blown away blown away when I first watched PWG. I had never heard a ring like that. I never seen guys move so fast, and I had never seen matches that good. I was just completely awestruck by it. And a large part of that was the Super Smash Brothers. And, you know, they had DDT4 2012, which I think is one of the best PWG shows ever, where in one night, they beat the Young Bucks, they beat Future Shock, and they beat two Husky Black guys, which was Generico and Willie Mack, a name I'm not sure they could get away with now, but I don't mind it. It made me laugh at the time. You know, that's one night where they they beat these three tag teams and then they go on to defeat the Bucks for the tag titles in a crazy street fight at death to all but metal. And then they win that ladder match. And it just really feels like this is a team that is genuinely, genuinely great in our, are coming across like stars quite honestly. And after January, 2013, that's when they have their border issue. So it's just, it's crazy to think of like now they're on AEW and they have their place there and they're a solid act, but the 2012 run that they had was really lightning in a bottle because it's really kind of specific to one promotion. But if you're watching that promotion, you would think they are the best tag team in the world, bar none. Yeah, yeah, and it's something that makes it so kind of sad because a lot of my basis behind uh, knowing them was from like Chikara and they really kind of broke out in a lot of ways in Chikara. And it's something that is kind of sad in a lot of ways, kind of like how things were. And I'm I'm so glad that things have kind of stabilized for them in a lot of ways. But it's just, you you know, and like this match, like uh, you're finally coming around to my point about DUF being a bad ma- a bad act. But a lot of that was basically because, weirdly enough, Sammy Callahan provided the uh, the the straw that stirred the drink. It's so, insane. It's, I, I don't understand why Callahan is the glue keeping this together. I mean, he's off in Japan right. at this point wrestling Yoshihito Sasaki, a man I, I greatly miss in the world of professional wrestling. But, man, Canada and Sanchez together, I just, I hate them. But, I you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if this is the weekend where they jump the shark 
or if when Callahan comes back, if I go back to enjoying the presentation. So we will discuss that as we go along in the next few weeks. Absolutely. And then post-match, this was the angle you were talking about earlier. Super Smash Brothers cut a very Canadian tag team title challenge. Chuck found Swamp Monster. He says everyone has to go through Gentleman's Club. Then Ricochet says, no one gets title shots. You don't get title shots. You don't get title shots. You don't get title shots because I've never lost a title match. I refuse to. And then and then the scene came out, but instead uh, Eric Cannon intercepted them and and just – did he hit Larry Dallas and that was the thing here? No, or? it was actually – it was a well-timed spot where Larry is bringing the microphone up to his face and Cannon perfectly intercepted it and just took the microphone from him and uh, did not let Larry cut his promo. It's it, it's tremendous. And then Chuck called out Johnny Gargano, and then we had the I Quit match. Johnny Gargano defeating Chuck Taylor twenty four minutes and seven seconds with a Gargano escape with barbed wire. And I I'm interested in your take here because I feel like that we might be very divergent here. Well, you bury the lead because Chuck Taylor came out with the Swamp Monster, and the Swamp Monster turned out to be Johnny Gargano. Now, oh, that's right. Sorry, I'm going to chalk that up to Scooby Doo logic and just ignore the fact that that makes no sense. That Chuck Taylor didn't know who was under this costume. I'll move on. There are bigger fish to fry. I, 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 uh, I like this match a lot. It is certainly in the pantheon of Johnny Gargano matches. It is the first one to feature melodramatic bullshit. This is the start of what Johnny Gargano's career would unfortunately become. It's it's a long match. It's 25 minutes. It it takes a while to get going. I don't think any of the walk and brawl stuff they did or the spots on the floor in the crowd were all that interesting. I actually think and it's and it's a weird spot to highlight as the turning point in the match, but they do a spot where Taylor and Gargano are wrestling on the floor next to the ring, and behind them, behind Chuck Taylor, is the timekeeper's table where they have these two girls sitting there. I don't know who these right. girls were. I've never seen them before. Gargano goes to super super kick Taylor. Taylor ducks, and Gargano just narrowly misses the girls on the kick. He, like, apologizes to them. Chuck Taylor comes running with a Yakuza kick. Gargano ducks out of the way, and Taylor nails one of the girls. And it was the first spot in the match that felt like a fight. It felt like an authentic brawl at that point. Now, you know, if you don't want to see man-on-woman violence, I don't blame you. It's not typically a spot I like, but it was the first spot in the match that felt really heated and really authentic. And from there, I think they put on an excellent brawl. I mean, Taylor is the secret king of plunder, and the crazy spot in this match is, is Gargano and Taylor set up a barricade to be laid flat from the apron to the other barricade, and Chuck Taylor hits him with essentially a Northern Light suplex, and Gargano goes over the top rope, crashing through a barricade and onto the concrete. It leads to uh, my good friend Sean Sloan is heard on com- or on the uh, the video saying, you can give it up, Johnny, it's okay. Uh, great moment in Sean <laughs> Sloan history. <laughs> Um, <laughs> tremendous, tremendous. Yeah, I, I wonder who said that because I remember that. Son, Sean Sloan, great line there. Great, uh, great job there. Great man. And it's uh, from there. It's like a really heated. And again, it's it's Gargano. Like you can feel him 
developing the melodramatic tendencies that I would go on to hate, that I would stop watching NXT altogether because I couldn't take it. But from there, you get into thumbtacks. This is the first, I guess, the earliest time on record I remember seeing, at least in American Independence, the thumbtacks in the mouth into a superkick spot. It was done a ton in PWG throughout the next few years. I'm sure it was done in Big Japan before this, but for an American indie match, it's the earliest I can remember seeing it. And then... They do a spot that I really, really liked where Gargano picks up the barbed wire. He's threatening to, to, you know, massacre Chuck Taylor with it. And Taylor gets on his hands and knees and says, hey, man, we don't need to do this. We're friends. Remember, Ronan, we don't have to do this. I thought at that moment, what, what I thought was going to happen was that Chuck was going to quit. Gargano was going to put the barbed wire down and Taylor was going to attack him from behind. And I thought that would have been a really interesting way of doing things instead the match continues. Gargano turns his back. Taylor tries to attack him, but Gargano sees it coming, and he puts the Gargano escape on with the barbed wire. Very similar to the Eddie Kingston versus John Moxley I quit finish just a few weeks ago on the AEW show. And so I went with four stars, and I have a feeling, just because we talked very briefly about the show beforehand, I think I'm higher on it than you. In talking about it now... I kind of feel like I underrated the match because it, it just it took a long time to get going, but and this will be an odd sentence, but once that girl got kicked, I really liked this match. I'm just gonna preface this by saying I gave this three and a half stars. And okay. I it was a struggle for me to to I was originally like three and a quarter. I was like, you know what, the effort here made it at least a three and a half star match. But uh the, the thing that gets me, and maybe it is because we are recording this like right after Ashida Okuda three, where basically Ashida uh, uh, was too pissed off to let someone beat him, and he just passed out. And after the exceptional I Quit match you mentioned with Eddie Kingston and John Moxley had a very similar finish. That actually I watched this match a day after uh, Full Gear twenty twenty, which probably was not a smart idea because I feel like that maybe uh, developed some sort of bias. But to me. This felt like a plunder match of a microphone. And it's not my favorite Chuck Taylor plunder match. For Johnny Gargano, this is Johnny Gargano doing more stuff that you would see than you would at the end of his Evolve stint. Like, this was a very brutal match, but you're right. It kind of was a walk and brawl, and this was like the... When I said this was a very depressing show, when they were doing the walk and brawl into the crowd, and the crowd did not have to get out of the way because, you know, there was no one there. It just was one of the things there, but... It, it, it's something where, like, Chuck is such, like, a idiosyncratic wrestler that I'm trying to think of other I Quit matches I've seen him in or other matches of, like, of, like that variety, but having Chuck in these kind of matches just feels a little weird with me. The, the, the craziest spot was the guardrail, and it's just one of those things that this really was, like, the uh, blueprint for the future Johnny Gargano epics, but it was not at that point for me. And if anything, it just felt like a plunder match. I think that's fair. I, You know, I'm super high on Chuck Taylor when he works this way, and it would be his second stint in Evolve in 2016 and 2017. I'm trying to find the exact match that I remember. Dustin. Yeah, it was all caps Dustin, just like Kenta, where, uh, you know, Drew Galloway was there and EC3 came in for a show. <laughs> there's a there's a great Dustin the, the, plunder the, the, match. The Dustin video. 
Yes. Oh, it, you're talking about the one with Ethan Page and the another one with uh, Riddle. Well, there's maybe it's the Riddle one. I I I thought he had one with Darby Allen, but I'm not seeing it anywhere. So maybe it was the Riddle match. I don't think that happened. Yeah, it uh, it you're right. It did not because okay. So I know what I was thinking. So that show has Riddle versus Dustin, which is a great plunder match. That was when Joe Lanza first brought up like, hey, Chuck Taylor is consistently doing these well. The Why I was thinking it was Darby Allen was the opening match on that show is Barrett Brown, Darby Allen, and Zack Sabre Jr. versus Ethan Page and the Gatekeepers. And Darby does one of his classic things where he climbs up a pole in that match and then does a coffin drop onto everybody. And that was like, oh my God, Darby Allen is the greatest thing ever. So they were on the same show, but uh, that's why I was thinking of that. But yeah, Chuck Taylor... I mean, there's a, a litany of PWG matches he had where he's brawling first and foremost, and when he puts his game face on, when he's serious, I really like it. Well, you know, he followed uh, Drew Galloway because he's a smart guy. He has a lot of smart things. You should listen to him. Are, are you? I, is Drew Galloway like a flat earther or something? Is that a, a reference I don't know? Oh, that was the Kenny Johnson mini doc that they played incessantly during the shows between the China videos was Dustin's sit down interview and always says like, Drew Galloway's a smart guy. You should listen to him. I, uh, I only remember the China video and I choose to only remember the China video. <laughs> yeah. And then we go backstage is the conclusion of Gay Sapolsky Masterpiece Theater 2. As Christina Von Ari says that El Generico will join the ghosts after Tazawa beats him as she's cradling an El Generico mask. And then the third-year recap of Sammy ending the show at Evolve 10, Tribute to the Arena, the show that has been prohibited to be reviewed on this series. If there's only one Evolve show that we're going to review, I put my foot down. It has to be the show. We've already passed that. Yeah, no, we're not retroactively talking about Evolve 10. I can assure our listeners that. <laughs> and then we had John Davis versus Yamato. Uh, John Davis got the pen in 13 minutes and 47 seconds with three seconds around the world. And I love this. Like, this is as good of a match as I feel like one could have with an absolutely dead crowd for me to be, like, all aboard on this. This is probably my second favorite match on the show. And it was just a match that the two of them worked so well together. And you you have, like, Yamato, like, having enough edge. And every time John Davis tries to, like, pick him up on his shoulders to try to power move, Yamato slides to the back and gets a Dojima sleeper on there. And I thought that was such like a cool thing. And it played very well into the finish. And I thought that even though the crowd was absolutely dead and it made John Davis feel like less of a star, I felt like this match ruled. It might actually be my favorite John Davis match in this promotion so far. So I was in a weird emotional state watching this match because Mike and I typically don't talk about the shows beforehand, but I sent Mike a DM about halfway through the show. It was right after the I Quit match, just talking about just, man, this promotion, it's just, it's just, it's a bummer to watch. And Mike sent me a, a message about how there was a match that I hadn't seen yet that made him sad. And my eyes darted to this match. I was like, oh, God, Yamato's going to kill him, isn't he? Because, you know, we talked about last week the segment where Yamato just chokes out John Davis and just makes him look incredibly weak. And I was like, oh, my God, they're going to follow through with this. So I watched this match essentially with blindfolds on, like, oh, God, when's Yamato going to beat him? Like, oh, no, they're going to ruin this guy. So when John Davis won, I almost jumped off the couch. I couldn't believe it. And it was a really good match that I almost feel like I need to go back and rewatch because you're right. Yamato was using John Davis like a jungle gym, essentially. It was a really good 
power versus technique style of match. If this was going to be style battle, it would be power versus Yamato style, which, you know, it's a, it's a style. Uh, but I, I ended up enjoying this match. I'm not sure it's a cardinal sin, Mike, but the fact that John Davis was not given a featured spot in a big match in Miami really, really bothers me. It just seems like that was a weekend, especially Open the Ultimate Gate, an iPay-Per-View that was $1.99. You got Pac vs. Loki on that show. Give John Davis, the guy that you're trying to make a homegrown star, give him a big match. Let the people see what he can do. Get him away from the DUF for one show and let him have a showcase because he was just not over on this. And, it, you know, it's a good match that didn't get over to the level that it should because they just clearly did not care about John Davis. I'm going to propose what match should have happened. And it's just, it's just changing two matches. He's just swapping in and out. Instead of having uh, Davis team with Sabu against Cannon and Sanchez, I want to have Davis fight against BB Hulk in, on the United Gate. And then... You could probably throw Tommy Dreamer in there with uh, with Sabu. And I feel like that you're fine. That, that's what it needed to be. John Davis versus a Dragon Gate talent. And Davis needed to go over. Now, he might not, you know, there, there might be business implications that lead to him not beating BB Hulk, which, you know, that's just a problem with the promotion. But, but that is an immediate fix right there. Davis needed to be wrestling a Dragon Gate guy. And he needed to be going over in Miami because that was... Up to that point, you know, all eyes on him, and he had shown early on, or I guess earlier on, he had the Akira Tozawa match in Milwaukee last year that was excellent. And as I go through the rest of his matches in this promotion, he wrestled Yamato here, he's going to wrestle Tozawa on the next show, he's got a, a brief singles match with Ata. And then he's back to wrestling Americans. Like, he never really got an opportunity. And in Dragon Gate USA, you need that opportunity to beat the Japanese talent. Right. And you know what, Case? Because I'm in a mood, and this show put me in a mood, that's a cardinal sin. John Davis. I, I You know what? You've talked me into it. I agree. Not working BB Hulk. Because I think he could have beat BB Hulk. I think they would have let him beat BB Hulk in that situation right there. I know he was. I mean, if he's beating Yamato, right. then he's he can beat BB Hulk. I mean, Yamato from day one has been more protected than Hulk. Right. Yeah. It's just one of those things that BB Hulk already lost to, to uh, low key, so it wasn't like he was super protected. So you could have done that. But yeah, I went three and three quarters on this. This was a match that I it, it it's a deep cut match that like I can't recommend this match without the qualifiers of the crowd is dead here. John Davis really was that this is a tight match. This You're absolutely right. This is a style battle kind of match, and it just worked, and I loved it for this. And this was not the match that depressed me. I went three and a half on it. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, John Davis took the microphone. He Someone in the crowd was trying to talk shit, and he cut a promo on them, and he said he does not want Johnny Gargano. He does not want the Freedom Gate, but he is the latest person to ask for an Evolve Championship, and he said, I will take a more direct approach. And then we have... Our second to the last third year recap, it is the Chuck Taylor Invitational and the introduction of El Generico to DG USA. I have no strong thoughts on Generico returning. I talked about them when we talked about the show. I do want to back up to the John Davis promo for just a second. I know there's been a reoccurring trend of guys cutting promos saying they want an evolved title, which leads me to two thoughts. One, just give them the belt. 
why wrestlers have to cut continuous promos for a title. I do not understand. Just give them the title. But also, was it weird to you for John Davis to be standing in the middle of a Drangate USA ring and to say, I'm not worried about Johnny Gargano's belt. I want the Evolve title. Because that was a really weird segment in my mind. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was awkward. It was an awkward thing. You're absolutely right about that. Um, just like a weird kind of stretch. And that leads us into the semi-main event. It is El Generico versus Akira Tozawa. Akira Tozawa got the win with the capture German suplex in 21 minutes and 19 seconds. <sighs> this match made me really sad, Case. Why is that, Mike? This match made me really sad because uh, I, I, I'm i with you. Uh, Krishna Von Eri probably could have worked in this promotion. But her and the crowd basically drove this from being like a four and a quarter star match to me. If this match was in Reseda in 2012, it would have been a four and a half to five star match easily. But in front of this crowd with what was going on in the match, this was a three and a quarter star match with me with Akira Tozawa, my favorite wrestler of all time. And I was miserable. And I was like, this should have been so much better, but this thing was just ruined by all the bullshit in the dead crowd. It is two of my favorite wrestlers. Cause as much as I love Akira Tozawa, I love El Generico. I think El Generico, Sami Zayn, is one of the most talented wrestlers of this generation. And and w- without getting into like d- the WWE thing about it, I, he, I think he is one of the most talented wrestlers of this generation. And I just came away with this match like depressed, like in a really bad mood, just like going like this match and this promotion should have been amazing. But because of the crowd and because of gay bullshit, I three and a quarter. And that's probably me being generous with what my opinion was at the time. That's interesting. I I think I feel the way about this match that you felt about the I Quit match, where I I was at three and a half, and the match finished, and I was like, you know what, that was that was a better match. That uh, it's it's not a great match, but it's not fair to say that's three and a half stars because it, it's another match that I thought took a while to get going, but right. once they started throwing strikes, I mean, you know, it was. Tozawa Generico. It's not hard to explain. It's two of the best wrestlers ever. And you're, you know, you're exactly right. It's a dead crowd. And then there's a spot at the end where Christina Von Eri runs in with a chair. The referee, and I'm going to put this at fault for everybody. Everybody is at fault here. Von Eri runs in the ring with a chair. The referee, like, pushes her back into the corner. And Generico goes for the Haluva kick. But it's all mistimed. Like the referee moves out of the way too soon. Von Eri ducks out of the way and it's just awkward and it just sucked. And it was a bad spot. And when you're booking Tozawa versus Generico, you don't need Christina Von Eri to run in. It's not needed. It's not necessary. But if you, if you look past that, you talk about the, the second half of this match and the finish, it's really good. It's just, it's a, a really good microcosm of Drangit USA where you have so much stuff going on and no one cares about it and it ultimately detracts from a very good in-ring product. Yeah, and it just detracted so much that unlike the uh, uh, unlike the I Quit match, it's such a detractment that like I was able to overlook things about the match in, with between Gargano and Taylor. It's just like so embedded into the core of the match that it's near impossible for me to do that with this one. And it's just frustrating because it is a match that like the work there is much better than the rating, but there's just so much bullshit there that you just can't, I just can't wrap my head around going any higher than I did. And I still feel like I've probably went pretty high here and it's just frustrating, you know? And I, I know we're on the same page here about this. Like, this is a thing about the promotion that like at this point, like when we get in the main event, the main event picked things up for me, but 
I came out of the show just depressed and sad, and I'm glad that I watched it when I did just to get it out of the way because I can't imagine just like watching this the day of recording and talking about it because I feel like I'm somewhat being more kind about this show than I was in the moment. It's a really tough weekend for the promotion. I think it's one that we'll look back on when we're done and we'll talk about how deflating the Midwest double shot in 2012 was. I just think it is, you know, in terms of the peaks and valleys, this is a low point. This is a real valley of a weekend for them. And it's just, it's taxing, quite honestly. These are two shows that were just not enjoyable to get through. Yeah, yeah. Then we had a third-year recap of Tozawa and Pack from L.A. You know, that match owned. That show, probably the best, easily the best show of this generation of uh, DGUSA and arguably one of the best shows all time. And then we led into the uh, main event. It was the match for the vacant Open the United Gate Championships. It was Shima and AR Fox. Technically, they will be soon representing uh, We Are Team Veteran against uh, World One International, Rich Swan and Ricochet. Ricochet finally loses a United Gate match when Air Fox hits the low main pain on Swan. Shima and Fox are the new Open the United Gate champions. You know, this wasn't the star-making performance that Shima and Ricochet versus Speed Muscle was in 2010, but it wasn't trying to be that. And on the same note, oh my god, AR Fox in this match. This was the definitive Drangate USA AR Fox performance. I thought he was unbelievable from start to finish in this match. It's his most complete performance to date. And I wish, I, I really wish things would have worked out either with AR Fox enjoying Japan or with Drangate USA being more successful in America because I... It just seems like we did not get the appropriate and proper run of Shima and AR Fox as a tag team because I thought they were excellent together in this match, Mike. Yeah, and this match had such a cool opening of a very fast clip, which is what was really needed after the last five matches. And then we got a lot of Shima and Ricochet early, and that led to Ricochet kind of vetting, pulling the vet card out with with Fox. And then really, it's a... Shame how, like, you're mentioned about the crowd and with Fox in Japan and just with everything here because this had, it's like, such an interesting, compelling thing because you're talking about AR Fox. I thought Ricochet took a huge step forward in this match, becoming, like, a full-on veteran. Just, like, the way of him just completely dominating Fox and early going. Ricochet countering the full course from Shima at a time where Shima did not pull out the full course very often. The full course for uh, new listeners is the Venus Iconoclasm Mad Splash. He countered the uh, Iconoclasm, which is something that just generally did not happen, and I thought that was so cool. And I just came away with this match thing, like, it rocked. In a better time, in a better place of DGUSA, this would have been the absolute star-making performance for Air Fox. Still walked away with this being a four-and-a-quarter star match and thinking that this was brilliant. Yeah, if this had the crown of a 2009 or 2010 show, we're talking about a legitimate match of the year contender. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned I'm glad you mentioned a few things. One, Ricochet flipping out of the iconoclasm. I watched this match earlier this afternoon. That is the only thing I've been able to think about since. I'm going <laughs> to gift that spot just because I need to show other people what Ricochet did. I've never seen anyone else do that. And he flipped out of the iconoclasm onto his feet, and then Rich Swan hit Shima with a dropkick. And it's like the coolest three seconds I've ever seen. I was bl- blown away 
by that spot. And I'm glad you mentioned the opening sequence. It is Rich Swan and A.R. Fox going out there and doing Rich Swan and A.R. Fox things. And I, I wrote down in my notes, that is what Dragon Gate USA should have been. Forget the scene. They're talented guys. You know me. I love John Davis. Ultimately, Dragon Gate USA at its core, it should have been centered, promoted, and excelling around Rich Swan and A.R. Fox doing what they did in that opening sequence. That is the tone that the promotion has been missing for a year now. Probably, I think that's fair to say. And it's noticeable when the high-flying Dragon action done by Americans is done that well. It hits you in the face and you go, oh, that's right. I'm watching a Dragon USA show. And then from there, you know, you're right. Ricochet... This is really the first time in his career after spending a year being, uh, I'm not going to say submissive to Pac, but Pac was the veteran, he was the junior. Now he has a chance to to be the veteran to the junior that is A.R. Fox, and it's a, a, a role that Ricochet always did very well. Ricochet is at his best when he is a cocky asshole. When he's beating down on A.R. Fox or he's beating down on Will Ospreay, that is where Ricochet really, really shined, and he got a chance to do that in this match. Like you said, the Shima interactions were really good, and I will continue to wax poetically about Shima and AR Fox. I just think they are such a well-suited tag team for one another. It's probably something that, you know, we probably don't give Shima enough credit for the high points of Osaka 6, for the high points of CK1, for the high points of Spike Mohicans, now he has got a high points with AR Fox, and there are are better matches that those two would have down the road. He's really an all time great tag worker. I mean, you just don't have guys that go five or six tag teams deep with match of the year contenders, but Shima does. I was at four and a quarter with this uh, as well, but with a better crowd, we're talking four and a half, if not four and three quarters. Yeah, and it's just something where like. Going back to the iconoclasm flip out because it's such a remarkable thing. Like you, sh- uh, like through your watching of Shima matches, whenever someone like gets out of the full course, it's either blocking the Venus or getting their legs up at the f- at the mad splash. It's never with iconoclasm, and I think that's something that made this like so inventive and remarkable. Yeah, no, it's it's I, that spot was just absolutely ridiculous, and and, and it's something that. I, th- I was afraid going into this, because as much as I love John Davis and Yamato, as I said earlier, I would recommend that match with a lot of qualifications. This is, like, outright is a great match that when we get to the end of 2012 and talking about our top DGUSA matches of 2012, it's probably going to be, like, it, it's not going to be, like, a top three or top five, but it's going to be up there in, like, the six through ten range. And I was really happy that there's at least one match on the show. And really, on this weekend... When we look at the Midwest trip double shot and how much of a mess it was, it really was Air Fox and Shima who are the people who held this very bad weekend for the promotion together. I think that's a very fair assessment of a very frustrating show, Mike. We do have because that's I you know I it, that's that's the thing. There's there's three really good to great matches on this show, and I came away hating this show. Right, it's depressing. It's a depressing show to watch. Like, you're watching a promotion die, slowly. Yeah, it's uh, it's just dragging you in a nutshell at this point. There's actually, I, I, I want to read this from TJ Hawk's review at 411 Mania of this particular show, where TJ says in his overall thoughts... Not to sound like a broken record, but this show was exactly what I expect from a Drangit USA show. There was a bunch of good to great wrestling featuring some of my favorite wrestlers in the world. However, 
The booking continues to undermine my enthusiasm for the promotion, but to expect anything else at this point would be a fruitless endeavor. The good news is that Dragon Gate USA continues to have a really strong foundation of great wrestlers and the invaluable WWNlive.com, so there is always room for hope. If they just cut out some of the, the fat in the promotion and stop making silly mistakes, uh, not promoting a retirement fuck stipulation being one of them, then this promotion could easily position itself as the best wrestling promotion in America. Until then, though, fans are still getting better cards from PWG and storytelling that blows DGUSA away from Chikara. Drangate USA and Evolve hasn't been close to those promotions since their first two shows, and it's frustrating to see so much potential go to waste. And I think TJ nails it there. Yeah, he's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, TJ is not wrong there. Uh, yeah, I, I did read that review and that quote. I'm glad that you pulled it because that, that's something I definitely wanted to revisit on our way out of here. But it's this is the unfun time of the promotion. When we get to the last four shows, when it's just weird, we'll probably have a little bit of a better time with it. But there was one last thing before we go. With, with, with some, we did get to have like a nice sheem up segment to take us out here, which made me a little happy. So. It was Air Fox and Shima in the ring post-match. Shima said, this is my new partner. He is my new best partner. And I'm going to pull up his quote exactly because it's really great. He, he calls Fox the new best high flyer in the world. It really picks off, pisses off Ricochet. That leads Air Fox to challenge Ricochet. And then Shima tries to do the go-home thing. And he says this one line that I think encapsulates this weekend very well. Maybe nobody here. <laughs> Oh, Shima. I mean, there's a there's a lot of facets to Nobuhiko Oshima, but that's one of the ones is that he would not mince words ever. And that's it for this weekend, Case. Should we take a look at the final shows of 2012 before we get out of here? Yeah, so we head into the Eye of the Storm next week from Everton, or I'm sorry, from Everett, Massachusetts at the Everett Rec Center, November 2nd, 2012. A show that features a non-title match with Johnny Gargano versus Ata. The Scene versus Cannon and Pinky Sanchez of the DUF, Sammy Callahan versus Samurai Del Sol, a Captain's Fall six-man tag match with the debut of ACH, Shima and Rich Swan versus the Gentlemen's Club of Chuck Taylor, Drew Gulak, and Orange Cassidy, John Davis versus Akira Tozawa, Kinky Horiguchi and Ryo Saito versus the Super Smash Brothers, and your main event, Ricochet versus A.R. Fox. Uh. I'm, you may be cut out there for a second, but there's another match on the show that you didn't bring up being Johnny Gargano versus Ada. Yes, I did. I, I I said that, but I must have cut out for you. So yeah, that is the opening match on the next show, the non-title Johnny Gargano versus Ada match. Ada's debut in America. I am really looking forward to revisiting this weekend for him. Yeah, uh, this is an this is a really this is not a card that I think will save the promotion. We're we're way past that point, but there's enough stuff here that looking at this card. Gives us a little bit more to sink our teeth into. Feels a little bit more normal. There's no pulling out of the out of the downward slide here, but at least this has a lot there that I find intriguing. So that's going to do it for this episode of Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch. You can find Case on Twitter at underscore in your case. You can find me on Twitter at Fujiheya, and you can follow us both at Open Voice Gate. So for Case, I'm Mike. We'll catch you next time on Open the Voice Gate. Take care.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.